Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brother Church. How are you folks doing today? It's great to be here with you. My name is Clark. I'm the pastor here. If we've never met, love to meet you and I'd love to meet your family. So stick around afterwards. Love to connect with you. I uh, hope you guys are going to stay warm today as well. We're going to get some snow later. So that's always fun. I was talking to somebody earlier. We're getting a little bit spoiled here in Northeast Ohio. I was having some uh, sweatshirt hoodie weather this past couple weeks. So I guess we're, we're bound to have some snow eventually. Well, we're in a sermon series called DNA that we started uh, last week. We're looking at our eight biblical values that we want to be as a church. We want our church to be defined by these values. So uh, if you're newer, watch it online or here in person, it's a good time uh, to see what our church is all about. We said we want to be known for these eight biblical core values. Uh, We're not creating these values that we're looking at. We're not making these things up. Uh, This is what God desires His church and His bride to be known for. Uh, If you were here with us last week, we looked at the Bible and why we value its authority and our need to pattern our lives after that. Uh, So today what we are going to be doing is looking at the next value, which is prayer. Prayer. And uh, in our list of values, this is how we have crafted uh, that statement regarding prayer. We said that we are people of prayer. We pray both privately and corporately. We believe prayer ought to be a first response rather than a last resort. We believe that prayer does not just fuel the ministry, prayer is the ministry. There's a lot of things we could say about that. Uh, We want to be a church that prays passionately and fervently and unified in prayer Uh, We want to be a church that believes that God can move mountains. We want to be the kind of church that believes that God can make a way when it seems like there is no way. So let's just dive in today. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at, um, kind of get a window into the early church this morning. So If you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Acts chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me just give you kind of the background and the context of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Luke is the author here. He's writing about the good news of God's salvation through Christ, through both Jew and Gentile, uh, Gentile meaning non-Jew. We see in Acts that the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus talks about this in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in every believer, empowering them to do ministry. We see that the church is born in Acts, and the gospel is spreading rapidly in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then up until Acts chapter 12, the church has been on a hot streak. Thousands of people are joining the church. It seems uh, daily or weekly there's conversion after conversion. And then we get to our chapter today, Acts chapter 12, where we see opposition, persecution raises its hand against the church. 
And today what we're going to see is that King Herod is seeking to win the favor with the Jewish people. So in order to do that, he begins to persecute the church pretty heavily. And today we're going to see how the church responds to that. The church responds by passionately praying for those who are imprisoned and for the church to stand. So let's dive into chapter 12, verse 1. Um, I'll have it up on the screen for you after we kind of walk through it together and I'm going to explain it, but I'm just going to read it all and then we'll circle back and look at it together. So Acts chapter 12, hopefully you're there by now. In verse 1, it says this, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by the four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So let's talk about this a little bit. I want to circle all the way back to verse 1, which notice what it says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. So this is Herod Agrippa I that it's mentioning here. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, he was born in 10 BC. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, which if you read the Christmas story, you, you see Herod the Great there. If you're a Bible person, you know all about Herod the Great. He was the one that ruled during the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, you can read about that in Matthew chapter 2. He was the one who did a decree that all new males be slaughtered in order to get rid of this new king that he had heard about. Uh, so Herod Agrippa 
was actually the grandson of Herod the Great. And now what we see here today, what we just read in this narrative, is that now it's King Agrippa's turn to persecute the church and followers of Jesus. Uh, but what's ironic is that if you study Herod Agrippa, what you see is that he doesn't really care about the Christians. He doesn't, he's not really known to be anti-Christian or anti-church in the purest sense, at least. If you study history, what you discover is that he's really pro-Herod. He's pro-himself. Uh, he's pro-politics. And he knew that the Jews hated the Christians, and he wanted to win favor from the Jews. So what did he do? He persecuted those who follow Christ, the Christians. And why did the Jews hate the Christians so much? It was because Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Christians were not afraid to proclaim that the Jews were the ones that killed Jesus. So they're saying that even though the Jews killed Jesus, that that didn't stop Jesus because he rose from the dead. He's alive today. Uh, and the Jews hated this message because many people were turning away from Judaism to become followers of Jesus. And we see that as the church is born, not only did they kill Christ through God's sovereignty, but in the book of Acts, the Jews keep persecuting Christians in the church. They arrested the apostles and forbidden them to preach the gospel on multiple accounts. Earlier in the book of Acts, they stoned Stephen. And why did they do that? For preaching the gospel. Uh, they tried to stop the growth of the church, and that didn't happen. The church continued to grow. And so now what we see is Herod is on the scene, and he has this great idea. He says, you know, it's Passover in Jerusalem, so... What that means now is that Jews are coming in from all over into the city. The city is filled with Jewish people, and he has this great idea. Like, if I persecute the Christians, then the Jews are just going to love me. I'm going to win their favor, and I'm going to be strengthened politically. And that's exactly what we see here. Notice in verse 2, it says that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He was one of the inner three that Jesus spent the most time with. Jesus loved James, but what does Herod do? He kills him. He beheads him. He kills him with the sword. And if you study history, uh, that kind of death was signified for someone leading people after a false god. So James is accused of leading people after a false god, and Herod beheads him. He kills him. And this is significant in the book of Acts chapter 12 because James wasn't the first Christian to be martyred, but he was the first of the disciples to be killed for his faith. And so here you, you picture what this must have done for the early church. It shattered this illusion that the 12 disciples had this special divine protection. And now James is dead, but if you think about Jesus' ministry, he talked about this. In fact, not only did he talk about this, he predicted that this would happen. Look in Mark chapter 10. The Bible says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, came to Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. 
See, Jesus in His ministry predicted that this would happen to James. He promised James and John that they would drink from the same cup that He did. And this idea of cup signifies persecution, suffering. Their blood would be shed. So James's death was actually a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had spoken over his life. Notice in verse 3 now, it says, When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now the Jews must have been really excited about Peter being arrested because the Jews hated Peter. Because in Acts you read that Peter was one of the most vocal. Everywhere Peter is, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's anointed and he's preaching on almost every corner. Any audience who will listen, he is preaching that Christ is the one who came. Christ is the one who lived, who died, who rose again. And he tells them to repent and to believe in Christ. So this is Peter, the apostle. When Peter gets arrested, you can almost sense the joy that the Jewish people must have had. They put him into prison, and the text tells us that Herod put four squads, four soldiers to guard him. They had two soldiers chained to Peter, another two soldiers outside guarding him, and four soldiers watching Peter at all times. I mean, talk about maximum security, right? This is amazing, but why did Herod go to such great lengths to do this? Well, I'm sure the Jews had already told him that Peter was already arrested. Remember in Acts chapter 5, if you look back, you see that Peter was arrested. And what did God do? He sent an angel to release him out of prison. So Herod sends soldiers to watch him. And he decides that after Passover that he's going to bring Peter out and try him and execute him to win favor from the Jews. Notice what happens next in verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So how did the church respond? James is now dead. Peter is in prison. What did the church do? Did they run for their lives? Did they go and hide? Did they form a committee? No. What did they do? They prayed. They prayed. They got together and they prayed and they prayed earnestly, fervently. If you look at that word earnestly, it's actually a medical term, stretching the muscles to its limits. It's kind of the picture. It's the idea of an athlete straining every muscle as they put everything in competition to win. The competition or the race, they're striving in prayer. If you look in the New Testament and you do a word search, this verb is used three unique ways that are interesting. Striving and stretching in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, this is the same word that is used where it says this above all love each other deeply right earnestly fervently love covers a multitude of sins so so peter is saying church stretch out and be earnest in the way that you love each other and it's used to give us vision and how we are to love one another but in acts chapter 26 verse 7 it's used in another way it says this is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly, right, fervently serve God day and night. So we see this word that's used in a couple different ways. It's used to say earnestly stretch out and love one another. And now that same word is being used to say stretch out and give everything that you have earnestly, fervently to serve God. So we see this verb being used to say, you know, love, church, serve, 
God, church. And now in our text, it's being used to say, pray. The church gathered and stretched themselves out. Stretched themselves out to pray that God would make a way. I mean, can't you just sense the passion? Just picture the anointing of these house churches as they're praying for God to move. And this is also the same verb that's used to describe Jesus' fervent prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The church's maximum effort. They're totally absorbed. They're just lost in prayer here. Notice what happens next in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. So the church is stretching out, earnestly praying. And what is Peter doing? <laughs> He's sleeping. Isn't that amazing? He's scheduled to be tried and killed the next morning, and he's sleeping while being chained to two soldiers. He's not praying for deliverance. He's not writing his last will. He's not crying and begging for mercy. He's just sleeping in his cell. Maybe the church was praying, as we read a little bit ago in our Scripture reading, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Maybe the church was praying that God would anoint him in sharing the gospel. But here he is, sleeping inside of his cell. And then an angel appears, the text says. A light shines in the cell, and he's sleeping so soundly that the angel actually has to strike him and wake him up. Like, hey, Peter, Peter, wake up. And what does the text say? At that moment, the chains fell off Peter's wrists. There's no hassle. There's no struggle. It just says that the chains simply fell off. What is Luke communicating to the church here? He's trying to emphasize that God is sovereign. God is supernatural. We serve a God that can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. Amen? This is the God that we serve. Chains can fall off because no prison can contain or hold or stop what God desires to do. And the angel speaks and he says, put on your clothes, put on your sandals. And they start walking out of prison. And the text tells us that Peter doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand what's happening until they come to this iron gate. And the iron gate that led into the city opens by itself. You see what's happening here? Luke is emphasizing that the chains fell off. The gate opens by itself. This is the God that we serve. They literally walk out into the streets and Peter is freed. And at that moment, what happens? The angel appears or disappears, and Peter came to himself. What does that mean? It means that he began to see clearly and understand the situation. That God once again delivered him. And God made a way where there was no way. God rescued him. Look at verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered we're praying. I mean, isn't that kind of ironic, his first reaction? Peter doesn't just say, like, wow, I'm free. I'm a free man. I'm going to run and flee from Jerusalem. No, what is his response? He wants to find the church and go where they are praying. To let them know what happened, that God answered their prayers. So he goes to the house with Mary and the mother of John Mark, where many people, by the way, believe that Mary was wealthy because she had a large house in Jerusalem where many people gathered. And many scholars will actually argue that it was Mary's house where the Last Supper was held. It was in Mary's home where they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, where there, there would be a lot of people gathered there as well. 
Okay, so watch what happens in verse 13 and 14. It says that Peter is like knocking on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. So I just imagine Rhoda, which is a really great name. We're not going to name our baby girl Rhoda, but maybe you will. Uh, just imagine Rhoda not letting Peter in, but instead going into the room saying, guys, God heard our prayer. Peter is outside right now. And how does the church respond? Look at verse 15. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. So just picture Peter outside now. He's banging, knocking on the door, trying to convince the church to let him in. Because God has answered their prayer. And then they went and they saw Peter. And how did they respond? The text says that they were astonished. They were amazed. God did it again. God answered their prayer and rescued Peter in such a remarkable way. Supernaturally, in a way where they were all shocked. They were astonished. And the story closes with the cruelty of Herod and eventually God striking Herod dead. And the church continued to grow and multiply. I mean, what a powerful narrative that is that we just read here today. Did you know what the Bible says uh, in Hebrews 11? It says the, it declares that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that? We serve the same God who allowed chains to fall off and gates to open and rescue Peter. We serve that same God today. And as we look at this story, I think there's three things that God is teaching us. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. But the first one is this. The church prayed fervently. The church prayed fervently. There was this crisis that was going on. Peter is going to die. James is dead. And what was the church's first response? They prayed. They stretched out. They were unrelenting, unyielding. And these rooms were filled with God's presence, and they're praying for God to make a way. I mean, imagine just the, the faith and the trust. And this is God's desire for us, His bride, today, here at Ritman, just like it was back then. That we would be a church that prays fervently, believing God to do the impossible. And here they are, and they're praying fervently. And we know that this was part of the early church because in Acts chapter 2, there's this great mission statement for the church where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? To prayer. This was their first response. They didn't allow the doctrine of God's sovereignty to stop them. They believed in God's sovereignty. They believed in God's grace. And yet that didn't allow that doctrine to stop them from fervently, passionately, earnestly praying. The church didn't gather and say, well, God is in control. And you know, James has already died and God's going to have his way with Peter. We should just trust God. They weren't sleeping at their homes peacefully. They were praying passionately, fervently, earnestly praying. God's desire is for us to be a church that prays fervently. They didn't go to Herod's place and try to plead for Peter's release. They didn't fight spiritual battles politically. They didn't complain to one another, turn on each other. They didn't flee Jerusalem to protect their own lives. James is dead. Peter is about to be dead. And you would think the church would just 
would just flee and go, but they don't do that. Instead, what do they do? They come together to do what? To pray fervently. That God would make a way. And what did God do? He responded. God is sovereign, but you know what? Prayer changes things. And we're called to pray fervently, believing that prayer works and that God can change things. All throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have God sharing to us that prayer works. In the Old Testament, uh, King David is running for his life. Talk about fervent prayer. He was outnumbered. He's a dead man walking, and yet he is crying out in the Psalms, God, help me. God, save me. God, make a way. And guess what? God responded. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 38, you could read this on your own time. Hezekiah becomes mortally ill, and Isaiah comes to him. You know what Isaiah tells King Hezekiah? He says, you're going to die. God's going to take your life. And how does Hezekiah respond? He faces the wall, and he cries out, and he weeps. Talk about a fervent prayer. I mean, he's a dead man, and yet God, uh, he cries out to God, and what does God do? He sends Isaiah back, and he tells Hezekiah that the Lord has heard his prayer, and he's going to extend his life. And then in the New Testament, it's all over the place. James chapter 5 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He goes on and James says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. See, James says that the prayer of a righteous person, which, by the way, who is righteous? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are, because you're in Christ. James is saying that your prayer is effective and that we're to believe that. And then he says, in Elijah, talk about fervent prayer. He's praying that it would not rain. And then he's praying that it would rain, and God moves. So just be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged. Pray fervently because God hears, and he responds, and God moves. And he desires that his church could pray fervently, believing that God could do anything that he wants and that he can. And not only did the church pray fervently, but we also see in this text today that the church prayed with unity. The church prayed with unity. Many were gathered, we see. They were united. They were not alone. They were in their houses. They were not in their houses praying to themselves. They were gathered and they were praying, and they were praying united. They were praying as one body. If you just think about that, any differences that they might have had that separated them from one another, those differences were gone. And they were coming together to pray for Peter and the church. And they prayed as one body. They prayed for one purpose, for God to make a way for the church to be strengthened. Prayer should always unite us. God has revealed that there's a, scriptural, uh, there's a spiritual battle going on. And all throughout Scripture, He's revealed what He desires is for us uh, for things for us to be praying for. Not only should we be praying fervently, but God has shown us what we are to be praying for. And it doesn't matter whether you're in children's ministry or youth ministry or boy-girls ministry, Sunday school, life groups, women of grace, as long as we're unified in our prayer and what we're asking God to do. So what are some of those things that God calls us all to fight for and to pray for? The salvation of the lost. We ought to be united in that in our prayer. 
if you come through the, our doors, then we're going to pray for your neighbors and for your family members. Why? Because we exist to reach the lost. That's our purpose. We're not just here to have a holy huddle. We're not a country club. Uh, we're not here to, you know, to do that. We're here to be the body and to go reach people. So this idea ought to unite us in our prayer. It shouldn't matter if they're seven years old or 70 years old. We should be united in the mission of salvation for the lost people. We should be united in the church, praying that the church would know the love of God more. Uh, and that ought to unite us as well. That should ring in every classroom and in every hallway of our church. We should be praying for the maturity of our people, for discipleship, for faith to increase. We should be praying for God to protect our church from wolves and sheep clothing, or dishonorable vessels. Jesus promises that they're coming through the door. And, and what's amazing is that if we're united and we're praying for all of that, we'll be more discerning and recognize it. God will give us wisdom. But the thing that we're unified in, in all of us, we're unified in our doctrine. So this, this story is teaching us that the church prayed fervently. I think we're also seeing that the church prayed with unity. And then finally, lastly, the church prayed expectantly. The church prayed expectantly. The situation looked absolutely terrible. James had been killed. Peter is guarded, high security. There's no way he's supposed to be killed the next day. And you talk about a situation that looks bleak and hopeless. I mean, this is it. But the church got together and they prayed expectantly, believing that God can do it because they had faith. Even if it's just a little faith where there's a little bit of doubt, it's still faith like a mustard seed and it moved God enough to free Peter. And it wasn't Peter's time yet. Jesus says in Matthew 17, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says, you don't even have to have great faith. Have faith the size of a mustard seed. How many of you have seen the size of a mustard seed? I mean, you could barely see it, right? It's really, really small. And this is like the faith that the church had in our narrative today. Why? Because Peter is knocking at the door. And they're not running to the door like, hey, he's here. Our prayer work, prayer really works. How did the church respond? They said, no, it can't be. It can't be. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So let me ask you this morning, what situation in your life seems impossible right now? Where right now, even hearing the Word of God this morning, the Spirit is starting to say to you, start praying by faith that I can make a way. Maybe it's something with your job. You're just so discouraged. Maybe it's a wayward child or grandson. Maybe it's God just saying to you, you know, pray expectantly. Don't give up. Believe. And what is God calling our church to pray for with incredible faith? Where there is no way that this is going to happen 
if God doesn't come through. If chains don't fall and if gates don't open, right, that God would make a way. May our church pray fervently. May we be united in our prayers for God's kingdom to come. May we pray expectantly, believing that we serve a God who can make a way where there is no way. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we just come to you this morning and we just praise you. We praise you that we live in a country where we can come and rally together around this gospel message and we can sing worship songs and we can study and learn, preach the Bible. We thank you that we have that message. We praise you that you conquered Satan, sin, death, your word says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Your resurrection has stamped paid in full all across human history. And we get to communicate to you. You haven't left us alone as orphans. Your word tells us that you sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us, those of us who have come to know you through faith and through repentance. Lord, forgive us for not tapping into prayer more often, God. Um, I know for me, Lord, I just feel so, so convicted that prayer is oftentimes not a first response. It's, it's a last resort. It's, it's like a Hail Mary at the end of a football game. Lord, forgive us for not coming to you and, and humbling ourselves and, and even getting on our knees sometimes and just praying and crying out to you that you would make a way where there is no way. Lord, thank you that you've given us this form of communication to you. Lord, help us to be a church that makes prayer a first response, not a last resort. Uh, Lord, help us to pray fervently, uh, to pray earnestly, to pray passionately to you. Help us to be a church that prays uh, where we are uh, united. Lord, help us to, to be a church that is always you know, consistently going after uh, praying to you, God, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, basis. God, help us with this. It's not easy, but uh, we know that, that this is what you've called us to do, God. So help us to be that kind of church. We pray all these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc.org at AOL.com.